You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of a collection of lectures by Rudolf Steiner entitled Ancient Myths and the New Isis Mystery. Most of these were given in 1918. One was given in 1920. It's appended. This is Lecture 2, given on January 5, 1918. Yesterday, I endeavored to show how the special configuration of mythologies, such as the Osiris myth, Greek mythology, and in a certain sense even the Old Testament teachings, to which we will return presently, is associated with changes in the states of human consciousness. We know how things stand in respect to the evolution of human consciousness. We know that we have to take into consideration earlier times of human evolution in which an old clairvoyance existed, an ability to perceive super-earthly things. We may want to look back at these things, for this retrospective helps us orient ourselves. Humanity must regain a vision directed to the supersensible. It will be found again by following the path of spiritual science, through spiritual scientific thinking. The resolve to orientate ourselves toward things yet to come through a consideration of what has been of what has been will help us see what each person can do no matter where he or she stands in the world for in a certain sense things that take place in later times are connected with events of earlier times from the vantage point of our fifth post-atlantean epoch which is still unfolding around us we are looking back to the fourth post-atlantean or greco-latin epoch and to the third, or Egyptian epoch. The latter was already a time in which it was natural for humans to express in certain mythical pictures and imaginations what they thought and felt about cosmic mysteries. We have already stated in another connection that we of the fifth post-Atlantean epoch have to recapitulate in a sort of inverted way what happened in the third, the Egypto-Chaldean epoch so that it emerges again in a different form. And, by the way, the book titled The Spiritual Guidance of the Individual and Humanity also refers to this subject. We saw yesterday that in the time of the Greco-Latin evolution, beginning with the 7th or 8th century before our era, there was a kind of looking back on the part of humanity, and that looking back to other states of consciousness was in fact expressed in imaginative myths about the ruling spiritual beings. In the fourth epoch, people knew. When we look around us, we see only the physical world, but we can reflect on the other worlds. Moreover, if you have followed attentively what I say in my book titled The Riddles of Philosophy, you know that in Greek times, and even much later, people saw ideas, as it were, as Goethe still did and that they could really say, we see them. Entirely abstract thinking has only appeared in the modern age, but at that time there was indeed a seeing of ideas, a seeing of spiritual realities, a living in spiritual realities. In the fourth post-Atlantean epoch, 
This was no longer the case in the full sense. But people remembered that it had been so earlier. They said, and in fact this was the truth, that there were beings who lived in supersensible worlds and still preserved life in the imaginative consciousness. For the Greeks, the individuals of the Zeus circle were such beings. And the Egyptians said to themselves, when Osiris wandered upon earth, people still lived directly with imaginations. The Egyptians did not, of course, mean one specific Osiris, but they did believe there had been a time when human beings on earth lived in imaginations, and one described the type of human soul which was able to live in imaginations by saying, Osiris lived upon earth. This living in imaginations was lost and slain. Osiris was killed by his brother Typhon, that is, by that force of the human soul which, to be sure, is still turned to the supersensible realm, but is no longer willing to develop the imaginative faculties. The ancient clairvoyance exists no more. The forces active in the old clairvoyance are now amidst the dead. That is why Osiris is the judge of the dead. The human being meets him after passing through the gate of death. The figures of Osiris and Isis were associated with the death mystery of those people who set the Osiris myth at the center of their thought. Everything that I have said can be found in the details through which the Osiris myth has been elaborated. Among other things, the point of time is specified when, according to the legend, Osiris was killed by Typhon. And just as we can point to a very specific heavenly constellation that the Magi of the East knew to be the constellation in which the new cosmic age was to approach, we have pointed out in the Christmas lectures that by a certain constellation of the Virgin, the Magi of the East knew that they were to bring their offerings to the new world Savior. So, too, those whose thoughts centered on the Osiris myth looked back to very definite star constellations. They said that Osiris was slain, by which they meant the old life in the imaginations vanished when the setting sun in autumn stood at seventeen degrees of Scorpio, and in the opposite point of the heavens the full moon rose in Taurus or in the Pleiades. The followers of Osiris declared this definite point of the year marked by the full moon rising in Taurus as the time when Osiris vanished from the earth, that is, when he was no longer present there. Of course, the way these things happen, they leave legacies. There have always been people, stragglers even up to recent centuries, who possessed imaginative clairvoyance. But the point is to indicate when imaginative clairvoyance disappeared from earth as a normal faculty of the human soul. And people were aware that in the age when imaginative clairvoyance prevailed on earth, conditions were quite different from what they were later. And this too was plainly indicated in the Osiris-Isis myth. But these are precisely the things for which the commentators of the Isis and Osiris myth show so little understanding. As you know, it is said that when Isis discovered that her husband Osiris had been slain, she departed on a search for the dead body. She found it at last at Byblos in Phoenicia and brought the corpse from Phoenicia back to Egypt. Such a myth expresses a deep wisdom, a wisdom about human physiology. 
What were the conditions like during the time of Osiris? During this time there was not yet a script of the kind that was developed later. What prevailed in Egypt during the age of Osiris was picture-writing, and it was considered sacred. And how actually was picture-writing brought about? It was brought about by taking the most important signs, not from animal or other earthly forms, but from the star constellations, in fact from the things clairvoyants saw in the star constellations. To make a comparison with something that has been in our minds lately, I might say, you have heard how Olaf Astesen, in the quote, dream of Olaf Astesen, unquote, experiences the spirit snake, the spirit dog, and the spirit bull. He describes what he feels about them. Imagine such pictures, but in a far more perfect form, as signs. These signs, then, are images of imaginations. Signs like the signs of the earliest writing were held to be holy. In ancient times, cosmic wisdom was contained in such signs, wisdom which was at the same time a wisdom of the celestial sky, inasmuch as people read the cosmic mysteries in the star script, as only the dead can do now. The gift of possessing a writing which is really a reproduction of imaginations belonged to humanity only at a certain period of time and then vanished and the ancients knew that this imaginative way of writing existed in the age of Osiris. Together with the dying away of the old life of the world in imaginations, the ancient picture script disappeared, and what has become the abstract script arose. This no longer expresses mysteries, but gradually, since it has become abstract, has come to express only the sense world, becoming the ordinary alphabet script. Just as in those ancient times Osiris was looked upon as the hero, the divine hero of the imaginative script, so Typhon, his brother and opponent, was the hero of the abstract alphabetic script that evolved from it. This is also indicated profoundly in the Osiris-Isis myth. Isis must travel to Phoenicia to find the corpse of Osiris, that is, to find the picture script transformed into letter script. The letter script was found, in quotes, invented, as we say, in Phoenicia, whereas the Egyptians in their old mysteries, in the time of Osiris, had a picture writing reflecting imaginations. The abstract script had now come from Phoenicia back to Egypt. Thus the transition from the old concrete conception in the imaginative script to the newer concept in the abstract script also found an expression in the Osiris-Isis myth. All these things lie in the course of human evolution. We are looking back to an older experience in imaginations. Real physiological wisdom is in fact expressed in the myths. Thinking gradually passed over to abstractions, not immediately to the quite empty abstractions of today, but to the somewhat fuller abstractions of about the 6th and 5th centuries B.C., for example, in the work of Thales, whose name is generally placed at the beginning of the history of philosophy. You can look it up in my title, Riddles of Philosophy. You can see from this that humanity has to look back to earlier evolutionary periods from the vantage point of very different soul conditions. To be sure, certain modern secret societies know about these entirely different conditions, 
but they hold that such things should still be kept under lock and key. That is not true for the present day, although it is a little dangerous to talk about these things past a certain point. Up to that point, however, it is not just a case of should. These things must be spoken of today, because the knowledge of ancient conditions of human consciousness helps us orient ourselves for what is to develop as the new consciousness. If we have the knowledge of what once existed, it can help us bring about the necessary new conditions for evolution, although they are of an entirely different kind from those required earlier. These days you find that boys go through a change of voice at puberty. As we know, it is the expression of an organic process, which occurs differently in the female sex, and which, to outward appearances, makes greater inroads into the female human being, since the process reaches more directly into the physical body. But that is not true. The influence on boys is just as strong, though it lies in a different sphere, so to say, and comes to external physical expression only in the change of voice. This attainment of maturity by the human being is and in fact has been ever since Osiris died for the outer world, almost entirely a physical process. When Osiris lived, it was not merely a physical process, but a soul process as well. The boy of fourteen or fifteen years, as you know we have already spoken of other experiences at the time of puberty, experienced not only that his voice changed, that which presently only enters presses into the region of the voice, extending from the sexual essences of the organism in, in those ancient times, also affected directly the thoughts, the conceptual world of the young boy. We must deal with such things truthfully. The voice apparatus is simply pervaded with the sexual essences of the organism. Today the voice breaks or mutates. In those days the thoughts mutated too, since it was still the ancient imaginative time. In those times the young boy before the age of puberty had certain imaginations. It was a living process, and all knew that the child up to nine or ten years of age had imaginations. Imaginations of spiritual events in the atmosphere. To this day there are still slight remains of this in almost every child of a tender age. Only people pay no attention to it or talk the children out of it as being foolish nonsense. <laughs> Spiritual events are taking place around us, in the air, all the time. The air is not only what physical science describes, but the locus of spiritual events. These spiritual events, essentially events of the etheric world, were perceived by children in full imaginations up to the time of puberty. And when puberty arrived, not only for the voice but also for the life of concepts, human beings felt something in themselves. It was in fact that which shot up out of the forces, which are usually called in physiology the sex forces, something of which they said, What I saw as a child, through the imagination in the atmosphere, now comes to life in me again. It is a perception. It lives in me. That did indeed happen. Human beings were aware that they had taken into themselves out of the atmosphere, excuse me, that they had taken something into themselves out of the atmosphere. Formerly the young boy had seen it outside, now it felt it within himself. 
For girls, too, in those ancient times there had been, before puberty, a perception in imaginations of what was outside in the atmosphere. But after puberty, that which in the case of the boy merely emerged as the feeling of an alteration in the mental life, in the case of the girl felt like an ascent of still more inward imaginations. It was the human image that she would perceive within herself again and again in imagination. And then she would tell herself, what I now perceive imaginatively is the same as I experienced as a prepubescent child out in cosmic space, as imaginative pictures. Each in its own way, the two sexes experienced deep in the soul that they knew something is born in me, which cosmic space has fructified in me. Thus we have a still more concrete form of the Osiris-Isis myth. It is universal wisdom, insofar as it is one from the atmosphere, but it has an organic connection with the deeper layers of the human spirit. Try and get a better idea of it from the following. Humans presently think in an abstract way, inasmuch as they long to know, through the head, the lawfulness of the world. In ancient times, human beings were clear that it is impossible to know truly this way, merely through head knowledge, but that we know through our whole being. We know what goes on outside in space, what goes on etherically, by first perceiving it, as it were, externally, and then after puberty, picturing or feeling it inwardly. How then do you perceive today with the abstract perception that you have? You discover something which you see with the senses, then you think it over afterward. The two steps follow each other in rapid succession. With the mysteries, through which human beings in ancient times penetrated into the laws of the atmosphere as represented in imaginations, it was a different matter. Throughout childhood, up to puberty, humans perceived, they only perceived. Later in life they worked it over inwardly. In a way it is only the succession of a perceptive process and a thinking process spread out in time, whereas today when to observe abstractly and when to reflect, when to form abstract concepts is left to the individual's own discretion. What we now crowd into a few moments regarding the outer physical world used to be spread over the whole life. To perceive, to conceive, was something which humans, in their relation to the world, thought of as spread out over the whole of human life between birth and death. Up to the age of puberty they perceived certain things. Afterward they reflected upon them. This is the way it used to be. But now think, people said to themselves, this perceiving and reflecting are connected in a certain way with the day, with the rising and setting sun. With the rising sun one wakes, gets up, begins to perceive and to think. With the setting sun this ceases, since one lies down to sleep. Thus people connected perceiving and thinking with the day, and what was spread out over the course of life between birth and death, they brought into connection with more widely extended cosmic events in the heavens. Just as my thinking and perceiving depends on the sun, on the ordinary rising and setting of the sun, in the same way, whatever humans develop in the way of perceptions and thoughts depends on larger, far-flung star constellations that reappear after centuries, after millennia. And just as in the past people connected ordinary perception and thinking with the day, 
with sunrise and sunset, indeed as people do today, though they don't think so and even may believe they go by the clock. So they connected matters concerning more comprehensive cosmic mysteries with the other star constellations, with the other events in the heavens. You see, a deep logic, a deep wisdom lies in these things. Superficialities like Dupuis' explanations will not let us get at the facts. But something else too is bound up with it. These ancient peoples, and we could speak of others besides the Egyptians and the Greeks, knew that the more inward-lying forces of human nature are connected with what comes to expression in celestial happenings in the constellations. That decadence which is expressed in current attitudes to the sex problem, and the most current attitude is the most decadent of all, was totally foreign to those ancient peoples. For them it was something very different. They had the feeling that when the voice broke, the thoughts broke too. And when these things happened, the sexual essences were suffused throughout the human being. It was their deep conviction that the divine was then pouring itself forth in the human being. Hence we find in an old religious excuse me, in all old religious rituals, things which these days are viewed only in a prurient sense, the sexual symbols, the so called sexual symbols, phallic symbols, point thus to this connection between the atmosphere with its air events and the human processes of knowledge, which take place during the whole of human life, between birth and death. Through my eye, through my ear, said these people, I am connected with what is brought by the day. Through the deeper, more inward-lying forces, I am connected with something quite different, with the secrets of the air, which, however, are perceived only in imaginative experience. And this imaginative experience in its concrete form I have described for you with reference to these early times. The Old Testament conception of these matters was different inasmuch as it put doctrine in the place of actual experience. The Egyptian of the Osiris Age, especially of the earlier Osiris Age, said, The true human being only enters me with puberty, for I then take in what formerly I saw in imaginations. The air transmits to me the true human being. In the doctrine of the Old Testament, this was transformed into the following conception. The Elohim, or Yahweh, have breathed into the human being the living breath, Odom, the air. Here the essence was lifted out of the direct living experience and became doctrine, theory. This was necessary for, and this is the meaning of the Old Testament, only so could human beings be led from that symbiosis with the outer world in which an inner connection still existed between the human microcosm and the macrocosm, the world, to their further evolution, of which I will speak later. As the connection gradually vanished, it became necessary to fall back on just such a doctrine as the Old Testament. <clears throat> but now came the time of the death of Osiris, and therewith the time, too, in which, while one thing became finer, the other thing, as it were, became coarser. How is that to be understood? Well, you can imagine it thus. Reverting to the old Osiris time, the human being before puberty saw or felt the light imaginations in the outer air. I am talking only of the male sex here. 
Up to the time of puberty the boy saw the light imaginations in the air in his environment. Afterward he had the feeling that they had entered into him, and the changes occurred of which we have spoken. For the child the air was everywhere filled with light phenomena. For the grown man, the matured man, the air was still there, of course, but he knew that, as a child, he had seen something else in it. He knew that the air was at the same time the bearer, the mother of light. He knew that it was not true that when he looked out into the air there was nothing in it but what was shown physically. Beings lived in it, which were to be perceived in imagination. For the Greeks these beings were the beings of Zeus's circle. Thus humans knew that there were beings in the air. But the fact that human states of consciousness have changed is connected with the fact that even objective things became different in their finer substantiality. <clears throat> Naturally, for the modern intellectual, it is an outrage to say such things. I know it is an outrage, but it is nevertheless true. The air has become different. Naturally, it has not changed in a way that can be tested by chemical reagents. Nevertheless, the air has become different. The air has lost its power to express the light imaginations. The air has, one could say, become coarser. It has actually become different on earth since that ancient time. The air has become coarser. But not only the air, the human being too has become coarser. That which formerly lived spiritually in the essences permeating the larynx and the rest of the organism has grown coarser also. So, in fact, when we speak today of the sexual essences, we speak of something different from what one would have spoken of in ancient times. Everyone in ancient times knew, my day-to-day -day perceptions are connected with my personality. The rest, which I experience from the atmosphere, experience with my whole life, that, however, is connected with humanity as a whole. That goes beyond the individual person. Hence they also sought to fathom the social mysteries under which humans live together, through the link which bound them with the macrocosm. They looked for social wisdom in star wisdom. But what lived in human beings as social wisdom bound them, in fact, to the celestial. This was expressed in the most commonplace concepts. <clears throat> A human couple, before the death of Osiris, would never have felt anything other than that they had received a child from heaven. That was a living consciousness, and it corresponded also with truth. And this living consciousness could develop because humans knew that whatever they experienced, they received out of the air-filled space. Of all this, only the coarse dregs, so to say, have been left just as in the air only the coarse sediment of those vigorous forces of the air that previously revealed themselves in imaginations remains, so in the human being only the coarse dregs are left behind. This needed to happen, since otherwise humans could not have attained freedom and a full consciousness of the ego. But still we are left with the dregs. In this way, however, all that the ancients meant by the divine which, as you can now readily realize, was associated in a roundabout way with the sexual essences, all this has been coarsened, not only the idea, but also the reality. Nevertheless, it is still there one way and another. 
Human reproduction in those ancient times was thought to be at direct connection with the micro-macrocosmic bond of humanity, as you have seen. But the whole of human social life on earth was, in fact, also thought to be associated with this micro-macrocosmic bond. Numa Pompilius went to the nymph Agiria to receive information from her as to how he should arrange social conditions in the Roman Empire. Thus, however, excuse me, this, however, means nothing else than that he had let the star wisdom be imparted for him. Excuse me, <laughs> had let the star wisdom be imparted to him, had let the star wisdom tell him how society should be organized. That which humans reproduce on earth, and which is connected with successive generations, was to be placed in the service of the star's message. Just as individuals directed their life with their ordinary perceiving and thinking, according to the rising and setting of the sun, so too what later became known as nation-states, that is, human groups, were to be placed under the star constellations as expressions of cosmic relationships. In German, and languages often contain memories of old conditions, we still have a remembrance of this connection in the fact that the relation of male and female is described by the word Geschlecht, sex, and the successive generations as Geschlechter, races. It is one of the same. It, it is one in the same word, the Geschlecht, the family, interconnected blood relations, and then the relation of man and woman. This also occurs. Excuse me. This occurs also in other languages, and it always points to humanity's search for a recognizable connection between the macrocosm and what lies in their nature, in the deeper strata of their being. These things have become coarsened in the way we have discussed. Among other remnants is the greedy and sentimental attachment to nationality, the clinging to the national, the chauvinistic impulse for the national. That is the lingering relic of what is the, in the past could be thought of in very different contexts. But it is necessary to see through those things in order to know the truth contained in them. What is expressed by the nationalistic longing? When a person develops to access this national feeling, this sentiment for the nation, what is it that lives in it? Exactly the same as what lives in sexuality. Sexual relations on one hand and national sentiment on the other express in different forms the same reality. It is the sexual human being that lives through these two different poles. Being chauvinistic is nothing else, really, than developing a sort of group sexuality. One could say that where the sexual essences, or what is left of them, hold human beings more firmly in their grip, there more national chauvinism is present, for it is the very force living in reproduction that comes to manifestation in national sentiment. Hence the battle cry, the so-called national freedom or people's freedom, can only be understood in its more intimate dimensions if one calls it without the least prurient meaning the call for the restoration of the nations in the light of the sex problem. <clears throat> it seems to me that the greatest mystery of the impulse of our time is the fact that these days the sexual problem is proclaimed in a very special form all over the earth, without people having any idea that out of their subconscious sexuality clothes itself in the words freedom of the peoples. 
and sexual impulses play a much greater role in the catastrophic events of today, much, much greater than people imagine. For the roots of what is happening today lie, in fact, very deep. Such truths must no longer be kept under lock and key in our present age. Certain secret societies have been able to keep them under lock and key, insofar as they have excluded women in the strictest sense of the word. While even today joint work with women can lead to all sorts of problems, as has repeatedly been observed, yet the time has come in which right views on these matters must be spread among humanity. Of course, all kinds of prurient, foolish, silly ideas have been spread abroad from certain directions, so that without any knowledge of the more intimate connections, all sorts of things are treated today as sexual problems. You can see how what here is pure, genuine, honorable truth comes in contact, on the one hand, with what can be the most impure, lowest way of thinking, as is shown from time to time in the outgrowths of psychoanalysis or similar things. You will always find, however, that whereas something rightly understood is profound truth, it needs hardly to be altered at all in words but only to be permeated with a low-minded type of thought to be reproduced to a per, excuse me to be reduced to a pernicious stupid thoroughly objectionable conception a former age could speak of nations when nations were pictured in such a way that one nation had its guardian spirit in orion another in another star and one knew that one's life was ruled by the star constellations. One then appealed, as it were, to the heavenly order. Today, when this heavenly ordering is no longer available, the appeal is a chauvinistic appeal to the merely national, that is, the assertion of an eminently psychosexual impulse, a backward, luciferic impulse. <clears throat> if one would see clearly and plainly what is today, one must not shrink from the actual underlying truth. But one can also see from such things why people are so afraid of the truth. Just imagine if in the outcry on the freedom of the nation of nations and so forth that is raised today, people were to hear that, quote, it all stems from sexual impulses, unquote. Just imagine that. Imagine the, the, grow, the crowing cock. I don't mean a particular one, not necessarily just Clemenceau. Just picture all the declaimers on this theme and imagine that they had to realize that their crow is nothing more, after all, than the mating call of the cock. However, finally it is decked out in national garments. These are things which humans must learn to know today, and which they do not want to hear. For as you know, things that are black are asserted to be white, and those that are white, black. The point is that the ancient time of which I have spoken has brought us to the fifth post-Atlantean epoch, in which abstraction has gradually developed. At the boundary between the fourth and fifth post-Atlantean epochs, human beings, the best of them included, fought and killed each other over the intellectual value of abstraction. You can read about it in my title, Riddles of Philosophy, where I speak of the nominalism and realism of the Middle Ages. Abstraction had grown to such a pitch that people asked themselves, when I form a concept, has that any significance for the things outside, or is it only a name in my head? Today people no longer reflect on such things. Of what interest is it to people to know that human beings tormented themselves in the Middle Ages when the abstractive power of thought was felt 
about what role the so-called universals, the general ideas, play in the world. That one wrestled and strove about what role abstractions play. Nowadays, no one thinks about this anymore. People have already become used to abstractions. No one strives to get beyond the abstract impulse, but on the contrary, only to get thoroughly within it. The conflict over universals ultimately came to the point where it was said, universals, general ideas, exist at first as specific ideas in God. Those are universals ante rem, when the ideas are in the objects. Universals in rem, and then the ideas are in our mind, our soul. Universals post rem. That was an expedient, a way of to find one's proper stand on the question. Are human beings connected with reality when they think, when they only think ideas? Something of how in ancient times human beings had been connected with reality could still be felt. In the past, when human beings reached maturity, they thought over, as it were, what as children they had formerly perceived. Only then did they know that the true human being had entered. So, in the Middle Ages, one had to struggle desperately over the universals, over whether, when one thinks, something of reality is still left in one's thought, or whether thought is entirely divorced from reality and has nothing to do with it. Since that time, people have grown accustomed to take the universals, the abstractions, as abstractions, and are more or less completely cut off from reality in their consciousness. Such a process is taking place continually on a small scale. Think for a moment. Words, which stand for concepts, are originally in direct connection with what is seen. For instance, a small group of fighting men has one man at the head, one man before the others. They call him the foremost, the first, first, chief or prince. The word was, at first, linked directly with what was beheld. Later it was set free. It became a word which denoted something without any sort of connection with a direct perception. Just think to how many words this applies. And the next step is that certain words then become privileged, that speech becomes monopolized, becomes the property of the state. Even in language certain things are developing in this direction, are they not? Take the simple case that someone has learned a great deal, has become wise. Let us say, without trying to be funny, he is a learned man. In a certain naive way, one might call him doctor. Here we have a connection with fact, if we call someone doctor, who is seen to be learned. For this title still has a certain significance when documentary evidence is provided by a corporation which gives this recognition. But the word loses its significance when it is monopolized. Yet humankind is enthusiastic about such monopolizing nowadays. All possible words are to be monopolized. A person is not supposed merely, through his gifts, to be an engineer, but this must also become a recognized title from heaven knows where. And increasingly, things are to be loosed from their connections. This is a small example of the abstraction process, but it is accomplished wholesale with momentous effects. A family has a father. What is the connection between the pater, who is the father of the family, and the pater, who is a priest? I wanted to bring this tearing loose of what is contained in the word forward, because it illustrates the abstraction process taking place in humanity. 
in the case of ideas, it is much more mischievous than in language. People often make use of concepts without having the least idea of their connection with what is perceived. And when, occasionally, people search for the real observation behind the word, the results can be comical, frightfully comical. Just observe, there are whole libraries today about the sign of the cross, which is really a universal sign spread over the earth, over the world. Most amusing is all the learnedness applied to it. Then there's a picture of a cross, then below that. This sign is traced back to this. There's a picture of a cross in a circle. That was supposed to have been the cross of former times. Sometimes writers trace that further back by saying that only the parts have been left, the swastika and so on. Yet what has been written about it is frightfully clever, quite immensely clever, the way cleverness has been applied. I do not wish at all to go in for detailed criticism, but to tell the truth. Cleverness is not enough. It should be obvious that the sign of the cross means nothing else than that the human being takes its stand, stretches out its arms, and then is the cross. From above downward goes a stream of existence that binds the person with the macrocosm, and through the outstretched hands too. And so the cross is the sign for the human being. And when you find distinguishing marks of the Assyrian kings or of the Egyptian kings, medallions, for instance, then they are medallions with the cross sign. And similarly with two other signs, the cross on the medallion is one sign that ancient kings wore. <clears throat> the star is in the sign is generally made in such a way that one does not immediately recognize the pentagram in it, or it may even be a hexagram, but that is not the point. Really clever people have said, that is the sun, that is the cross, that is the moon, that is the star. But the deeper meaning lies precisely in the fact that the human being, the microcosm, is compounded of sun and moon. You see, from this ordinary cross, how the concept has been separated from the real object. The direct perception is this, the sign is this, the human being in the form of a cross. People today know so little of how to connect the object with the sign that, as I have said, an immensely clever literature has come into existence to find out how this sign is connected with what it wants to express. And so one could write fancy articles over the most commonplace words without discovering how these things, these words, are connected with the realities. <clears throat> Humanity had to go through the period of abstractions. We know that today we are no longer in the sign of Aries, in which the sun stood at the beginning of spring when the transition took place from the old imaginative time of which echoes still lingered to the age of abstractions. We have entered the age of Pisces. The special characteristic of this age is that the human being receives the force for abstract ideas out of the macrocosm. Today this force is given to humanity from the macrocosm. But in the meantime humans do not know how to reunite the abstract ideas with reality. They must be reunited. I started this lecture by saying that in this fifth post-Atlantean epoch there must be a kind of recapitulation of the time in the Egyptian Chaldean epoch when people looked back to the ancient Osiris age when imaginations existed. The reverse, as it were, must take place. 
Humans must find their way back to the imaginations. Or put differently, Osiris must become alive again. We must find ways and means to bring Osiris to life. I have spoken very concretely in these studies by saying that we must find forms of experience which are common to the dead and the living. Since Osiris was slain, he has been with the dead. He will remain with the dead, but he will have to come again among the living when concerns arise that are common to the dead and the living for the social life of human beings. This brings us to the fact that people must understand something which is of the utmost necessity for our time to understand. How will Osiris be revived? How can Osiris come to new life? How do human beings approach life and experience again in the imaginative consciousness? We will speak tomorrow of how Osiris is to rise again and how the resurrection is to be brought about. Tomorrow's subject, then, will be the imaginative consciousness. The end of Lecture 2